Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. and dreamers make wonderful things happen. They have a fleeting thought, an idea that nibbles at them until they take the first steps to creation. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Trailblazers, hope and a dream. It was the winter of 1859, cold and unforgiving. The gold rush was on and men from every walk of life crowded to Bodie, California in hopes of striking it rich. Of course, the place wasn't named Bodie when they arrived. The name came later. But let's just say that people were mining and panning in the area in eastern California, just north of Mono Lake. A man whose first name was Waterman set down roots here, having come from Poughkeepsie, New York, to find his fortune. In the 1845 edition of the Poughkeepsie Business Directory, he's listed as a tin manufacturer with his shop address at 345 Main Street. His home address is listed to be on the corner of South Hamilton and Montgomery Streets. The important thing to remember here is that the man's last name was Bodie, B-O-D-E-Y, later misspelled by a sign painter as B-O-D-I-E. The land he claimed would later become known as Bodie Bluff, and a town was built there to house the many prospectors that made their way. Unfortunately, Bodie wouldn't live to see his name be attributed to the place, because as the weather was inclined to do in the winter months, there was a terrible snowstorm. Bodie, needing supplies from Monoville, decided to travel with a Native American companion through the storm regardless of the risk. Slogged down by snow and howling winds, the two quickly became disoriented and walked in circles endlessly. They found themselves without shelter, a fire, or food, Bodie perished in the storm, being unable to walk any farther, and his body was found during the spring thaw. Sometimes hope and a dream can only take you so far. Sometimes you also need shelter from the storm. Hello, Odd Pod listeners, and welcome back to another episode. This week, I bring you an in-depth look at Bodie, California, 
and the ghostly history that still lingers within some of the dilapidated buildings. I realized recently that I hadn't taken you to a haunted location for a little while, and I thought that Bodie would be perfect. Before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone for their well wishes regarding my theses. The document is finally finished and submitted to my university for their archives. I couldn't be more pleased. I'll get my diploma in May, but I've been working towards this accomplishment for two years, and I'm more than happy to be done. So thanks to my faithful followers for the notes of encouragement and support. Also, big thanks to my lovely wife and to my dear friend Tony, who helped keep me on track and heading towards that goal. You guys are awesome. Anyway, on with the show. Interest in Bodie may have been high at the start, but by 1868, only two stamp mills had been built in Bodie by two separate companies. Both failed. But don't despair for Bodie just yet. From Wikipedia, quote, In 1876, the Standard Company discovered a profitable deposit of gold-bearing ore, which transformed Bodie from an isolated mining camp comprising a few prospectors and company employees to a Wild West boomtown. Rich discoveries in the adjacent Bodie mine during 1878 attracted even more hopeful people. By 1879, Bodie had a population of approximately five to 7,000 people and around 2,000 buildings. One legend says that in 1880, Bodie was California's second or third largest city, but the U.S. census of that year disproves this. Over the years, Bodie's mines produced gold valued at nearly 34 million U.S. dollars. Bodie boomed from late 1877 through mid to late 1880. The first newspaper, the Standard Pioneer Journal of Mono County, published its first edition on October 10, 1877. Starting as a weekly, it soon expanded publication to three times a week. It was also during this time that a telegraph line was built, which connected Bodie with Bridgeport and Genoa, Nevada. California and Nevada newspapers predicted that Bodie would become the next Comstock load. Men from both states were lured to Bodie by the prospect of another bonanza. Gold bullion from the town's stamp mills were shipped to Carson City, Nevada by way of Aurora, Wellington, and Gardnerville. Most shipments were accompanied by armed guards. After the bullion reached Carson City, it was delivered to the mint there, or sent by rail to the mint in San Francisco. So, I've said that at its peak, Bodie boasted around 2,000 buildings. I'd like to kind of go through that list with you guys to let you know some of the buildings that are currently still standing and still in decent repair in Bodie. So let's start at the McDonnell Dolan House. Donald and Mary McDonald lived here with their son Frank around 1920, and later schoolteacher Alice Dolan would live here from 1935 to 1937. The Methodist Church in Bodie was built in 1882 and is the only one left standing. 
The D.V. Kane House was built in 1873 and housed David Victor Kane and his wife Ella M. Cody. The Miller House. Tom and Jesse Miller lived here with their two children. Tom worked as a teamster for the Bodie Railway and Lumber Company. The James Stewart Kane House. James S. Kane and his wife Martha Delilah Wells lived here. Kane was a lumber merchant and a banker, owning many of the properties in Bodie. And we'll talk a little bit about him a little later. There was a morgue. The mortuary actually still has caskets inside. This is the only building in town made of red brick that was laid three layers thick, and it was likely done that way to help maintain a cooler temperature for the deceased. The Miners' Union Hall served as a gathering place for Union members and was used to host large festivals. It's since been renovated into a museum and a gift shop. The Independent Order of Oddfellows Hall was a fraternal society that operated in Bodie and in other places in the country. DeChambeau Hotel. As of 1879, it was initially a post office, but it later became a hotel and finally a bar and a cafe. The Swayze Hotel. Horace F. Swayze bought this building in 1894, and later it became a clothing store and a casino. The Boone Store and Warehouse. Harvey Boone and James W. Wright operated this general store, which had a Shell gas station adjacent to the right. The Lottie and Eli Joel House. The Joels were successful mining investors who purchased many of the properties in Bodie. This building housed the post office from 1932 to 1942. Sam Leone's Bar. Sam Leone was owner of the U.S. Hotel until it was destroyed in a 1932 fire. In 1937, he opened a bar in this location. The Joe Hainer Barber Shop. Joe Hainer was the last barber to work in Bodie. Of course, every town needs a firehouse. Bodie was subject to frequent fires, most notably in 1892 and 1932. The California Conservation Corps rebuilt this building in the 1930s. Wheaton and Lurs. George A. Wheaton and Nicholas C. Lurs operated a general store in the 1880s, which was later purchased by James Kane in 1898. The hydroelectric building is pretty self-explanatory. That was the electricity substation for the town. The schoolhouse, having reached maximum enrollment of 615 in 1879-1880, the school finally shut down in 1942. The Gregory House. Nathan Gregory was a cattle rancher who lived here with his wife, Catherine, and their four children. The McMillan House. A.E. McMillan served as secretary of the Bodie Miners Union. Miller Boarding House. William and Ann Curry Miller ran this boarding house, providing lodging to primarily single miners. Conway House. Thomas Robert and Annie Conway lived here with their three children. Dr. Street's house. John A. Street worked as a doctor for the Treadwell Yukon Mining Company from 1930 to 1932. Quinville House. Frank F. Quinville, a blacksmith, lived here with his wife Mary and their five children. 
The Standard Mill. The Standard Consolidated Mining Company was the most important mining company in Bodie, and this was their stamp mill. The area has been deemed unsafe, and visitors can't enter unless you're part of a guided tour. The Chinese Laundry. Previously, this site was home to Bodie's Masonic Hall, Lodge Number 252, but a laundry building was moved here after the lodge was consolidated with the one in Bishop in 1918. And the same way that every town needs a fire station, Bodie also had a bank. There's only ruins to be seen here. They consist of the bank's brick vault, the only thing that was left after it was destroyed by fire in 1932. Kirkwood Stable. Stuart Kirkwood ran a stable with a blacksmith shop inside. Horses and mules were used to transport goods on wagons, so it was necessary to have a place to shoe them. The jail. Constable John Kurgan ran the jail from 1878 to 1881. Moyle House, north. The Moyle family owned two houses, the other one further south. The Stuart Kirkwood House. In addition to running the stables, Kirkwood was also the deputy sheriff. The Bell Machine Shop. Son of Lester Bell, Bobby Bell worked in mining and assisted in the establishment of the state park. Reddy House. Patrick Reddy was a California state senator and a defense attorney who had offices in both Bodie and San Francisco. The Murphy McRae House. The 1880 census identified this as the Murphy House, but it's unknown who exactly lived here out of the many Murphys. Carpenter William McRae was the last known resident. Cody House. Michael J. Cody, a miner and Mono County Sheriff, lived here with his wife Catherine and their six children. The Menasini House. Joseph and Fortunata Menasini lived here with their daughter. Lester E. Bell House. Bell managed Standard's cyanide plant, which used cyanide to extract gold from low-grade ore. Cameron House. Andrew P. Cameron, a miner, lived here with his wife and two children. Siler House. August Siler, a saloon keeper, lived here with his wife, Teresa, and their four children. Donnelly House. Charlie Donnelly and his wife, Annie Pagden, lived here. And afterwards, Emil W. and Dolly Billup moved in. The sawmill provided firewood to help residents endure Bodie's harsh winters. McDonald House. Dan McDonald worked for Standard, where he was injured in an explosion. Later, Solomon Burkham came to own this place. And Metzger House. Henry Metzger, foreman of Standard Mill, lived here with his wife Lena and their five children. Blogger Jason Ablenalp describes early life in Bodie vividly on his blog. Quote, at its peak between 1879 and 1881, Bodie's Main Street reached over a mile in length. During this time, Bodie had two churches, one Catholic, one Methodist, and at least two papers, a telegraph station, post office, 22 operating mines, many large and very noisy stamp-style ore mills, multiple motels, several general stores and mercantiles, 
stables, doctors and pharmacists, union halls, schools, breweries, and several dozen saloons. Although it's difficult to accurately gauge the size of the town due to the transient nature of the region's population in the 1870s and 1880s, Bodie was likely the sixth or seventh largest city in California at this time. Aside from the vast mineral wealth and the rough-and-tumble reputation of the town, Bodie's next claim to fame is the installation and operation of the world's first long-distance electrical transmission network. In 1892, the superintendent of Bodie's Standard Mine began designing an electrical system to replace the facility's expensive and laborious steam plant. After locating a suitable site for a hydroelectric station on Green Creek near Bridgeport, 12.5 miles of suspended power lines were strung, linking the 3,300-volt hydroelectric station to the mine. At this time, electrical transmission over such a great distance was unheard of, and many of the mine's investors were skeptical of the undertaking. Once the lights turned on and the machinery began turning on electrical power, the skeptics were turned into believers, and the industry was revolutionized at a global scale." End quote. Some parts of Bodie were civilized, filled with upstanding citizens who used their wealth to better their living situation, while many more spent their money on women, booze, and gambling. It was sometimes so rowdy that the town earned the nickname Big Bad Bodie. The local Methodist minister, Reverend F.M. Warrington, commented that Bodie was a sea of sin lashed by the tempests of lust and passion. The town was also a magnet for other unsavory characters like murderers and thieves, who likely knew that Bodie only had one jail and hardly enough police presence to keep the seedy side under control. At least one person per day met their end at the hands of one of these cutthroats. The funeral business was booming in Bodie. People in Bodie were able to make a life for themselves, and they lived well. But in 1917, the Bodie Railway was abandoned and its iron tracks were scrapped, though Bodie had first been described as a ghost town two years before that happened. An action like this can be the first indicator of the doom of a small town, and it absolutely was. Truthfully, people had already started to leave Bodie for Montana, Tombstone, and Arizona in the 1880s. These places were next in line to experience the boom that Bodie once had. In the summer of 1892, a kitchen fire destroyed most of the town west of Main Street. Although the buildings were rebuilt, many residents decided to leave. Another fire in the summer of 1932, started by a boy playing with matches, was the final nail in the coffin. There's a story that goes something like, the boy was upset that he didn't get the birthday cake that he wanted, so he lit a table on fire. I'm not sure if I believe that. The last mine closed in 1942 due to the War Production Board Order L-208. This meant that all non-essential gold mines were shut down during World War II, and mining never resumed after the war. By the tail end of the 1940s, Bodie was only really visited by tourists, 
who were interested in the historical value of the place. In 1962, after years of negligence, the town became a state historic park. Eventually, it graduated to become a California historic site. Of course, a place like Bodie, steeped in so much history, is never truly empty. In fact, some of the residents of Bodie never left. They've lingered here, kept an eye on the place, from the afterlife. A lot of people were killed during Bodie's gold rush era, either by bullet, a mine collapse, or just poor living conditions. The history is a little dicey here, so bear with me. According to some, the spirit of a man named Ed haunts Bodie, shaking his fist at onlookers. Ed was a past resident of Bodie who lived with a Native American bride. I'm not sure what caused it, but one day Ed decided that he was going to shoot his wife. She was shot fatally, and she died in hospital. Three townsfolk, who decided to take the law into their own hands, tied Ed up and took him to a nearby creek. They kicked and beat the man until he went unconscious, and then they left him to drown. As the story goes, these three men died one after another in a series of strange occurrences after Ed's ghost appeared to them, shaking his fist. One man died after sustaining a huge gash to his face. The second died of a hemorrhage that caused fluid to build up in his head. And the third disappeared and died in a ravine. Did they all die because Ed had placed some sort of curse on them? Was it just the luck of the draw, given the conditions in Bodie? There are many active shadow people in Bodie. Seen out of the corner of your eye, peeking out a window or a door that's ajar. And some of these spirits see fit to punish those who choose to ignore the rules of the park. Visitors aren't allowed to take any sort of souvenir from the place, as these items are historic. But people try to break these rules all the time. Dutiful spirits keep an eye on visitors, and, of course, if someone chooses to break the rules, they're doomed to experience misfortune. It's supposed that the spirits are cursing the stolen objects that the visitors are bringing home with them. The park rangers regularly receive letters and packages containing the items that were stolen, in hopes that returning that item might lift the curse that's been placed on them. So let's take a moment to visit some of the haunted locations within Bodie, starting with the Gregory House. This house is relatively small with only enough floor space for a chair, a bed, and a small table. Historians believe that the house was once much larger and belonged to a wealthy family and that this is all that remains of the structure. Visitors have reported seeing an old woman rocking in a rocking chair inside the house, knitting peacefully. Occasionally, this chair can be seen rocking by itself with nobody in it. There's been no evidence captured of this particular entity, but rangers, volunteers, and repairmen have all said that they've seen her, and they can even pick out her facial features clearly when she manifests. A man named Mendicini drove freight trucks from Aurora to Bodie and had a modest home there. The Mendicini home is one of the structurally sound buildings in town, and rangers often live there in season. 
The Mendocini children are often heard playing and laughing inside and outside the home, and they're curious about the people who choose to inhabit it. The spirit of Mrs. Mendocini, or the eldest daughter, Anna, often offer hospitality to the rangers any way they can. Sometimes the house smells of wonderful Italian food or strongly of garlic. One park ranger, after wishing that he had some garlic for the lasagna that he'd made, had to leave the house when a strong aroma of garlic began to make his eyes water and his sinuses burn. Yet another ranger was sitting alone reading when he heard the sounds of a raucous party going on. He heard loud voices and glasses clinking. The ranger checked outside, but saw no one. When he entered the house again, he thanked the hostess for inviting him to the party, but he had a lot of reading to do. The disembodied voices and general noise completely disappeared. John S. Kane wound up owning the Standard Mine and Mill in Bodie and became the town's principal property owner. He was very rich, and the level of his wealth is apparent in the house that he built for his family. It's filled with beautiful woodwork, large windows, and a second story. Kane could even afford to hire servants that took care of all of the chores and the working of the house and his family. Supposedly, Mr. Kane was having an affair with one servant in particular when Mrs. Kane found out about it, and she promptly told him to fire her. The woman, having had her reputation destroyed and being unwilling to join the sex trade, is said to have taken her own life. In the Kane house, doors open and close on their own. The spirit of the female servant is said to make her presence known, particularly in bedrooms, and often tries to, quote, play with children who are staying at the house or touring it. Her figure can be seen in upstairs windows, smiling down at people on the street. The sound of a music box playing can be heard in an upstairs bedroom. Many rangers have reported waking suddenly to an almost suffocating pressure on their chest. Some of the rangers' wives have also reported this. Whoever this female servant was seems to have a problem with couples who stay at the Kane house. Our last stop on the Bodhi tour is the Bodhi Cemetery. There's a good cemetery and a bad cemetery, and those who committed crimes weren't permitted to be buried within the fence. They were laid to rest outside the fence. From hauntedhouses.com, quote, Bodhi Cemetery has around 80 tombstones still marking the graves of the departed. There are three official large sections of sub-cemeteries that make up the majority of the graves in Bodhi. The Miners Union Cemetery area, containing about 38 marked graves. For the general public, the Ward Cemetery area, containing 29 marked graves and the Masonic Cemetery area, containing nine marked graves. The other people while alive that didn't quite measure up to social ethnic standards and or behavioral standards, sex workers, thugs, etc., were buried outside the perimeters of the Bodhi official cemetery plots due to their line of work when they were alive. Just west of the three sub-cemeteries was the Chinese cemetery, the Chinese people who died in California wanted to be buried only long enough for their bones to be clean, 
so their family members could take their bones back to the homeland. Unfortunately, several hundred Chinese people remain buried in their cemetery section because of the need for the relatives to leave Bodhi due to violent prejudice and to find work elsewhere. The outcasts of Bodhi, that includes gunmen, murderers, sex workers, children born out of wedlock, were buried in their own section, marked only with a pile of rocks. Some of the more frequently seen spirits in the cemetery are those of children. Often these spirits appear to children who are the age that they were when they passed away. One little girl named Evelyn, who was accidentally struck in the head with a pickaxe, often appears to other little girls who visit the cemetery. When parents ask their kids who they're talking to or playing with, some children have said that they're playing with a little girl who has a hole in her head. Adults have also heard Evelyn. A male tourist heard a plaintive, hopeful little cry from an unseen child presence say, Daddy? End quote. The area outside the cemetery is home to many Chinese individuals who were interred there, often based solely on their ethnicity. Their spirits are often seen wandering, likely longing for the place that they once called home and seeking rest with their ancestors. The portion of Bodhi known as Chinatown is long gone, likely burned in the 1932 fire, but the staff who work there often experience lights turning off and on, cold spots, doors opening and closing, and disembodied voices. Perhaps these spirits aren't just confined to the cemetery. In many cases, the tombstones on these graves can't be read, as time has washed away the names, but efforts have been made to identify those who were laid to rest there. I'll drop a link into the show notes so that you can pay your respects. There are over 150 markers and 200 known burial sites, so it might take you a while. Annually, Bodhi sees around 200,000 visitors who come to explore the dirt roadways, cemeteries, and stamp mill. Though some of the buildings are used as residences for the living, park rangers and volunteers in season, many venture into Bodhi hoping to catch a glimpse of what life was like for prospectors and maybe even see a few spirits along the way. Just remember to leave things as you found them and don't take anything home. That's it for this week, dear listeners. I'll be back again next week with more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure that you're in the know when a new episode drops. 
Sincerest thanks to those who have promoted the Identity Podcast, to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. <laughs>